Will you please turn in your Bibles to Matthew 7, Matthew chapter 7. And the guys have some Bibles, so they've come up front. They're going to make their way to the back. They'll get a Bible to you if you need one. So just get their attention. And those Bibles are marked at Matthew chapter 7. Before we get into the message, I was given a message uh, just a bit ago, uh, and I should preface it by saying that the sister I'm going to mention is fine uh, in the Lord's mercy. But uh, Rachel Muscat uh, was on her way to church, and her car spun out, and uh, actually hit a wall, I'm told, on 75, and uh, she bumped her head, but she's fine. So we thank the Lord for that, and uh, we're going to have a word of prayer for her before we get into the message. I'm also told a couple of our guys are on our way, on their way to, to where she is, uh, so she was able to call some folks here, and uh, so everything's going to work out in God's good providence, but uh, let's... Thank the Lord for uh, sparing our sister and ask uh, him to heal uh, whatever bruises come out of this, okay? Let's bow together. Father, we believe you are Lord, and you are the Lord of everything. You are the Lord of the weather. And so nothing that comes our way uh, is by surprise to you. You have planned it all. So help me, help us in the midst of this storm and every circumstance of life to see it that way that you are in control and you have your purposes. And Lord, we have this report of our sister Rachel and uh, the accident that she has had. We want to thank you, Lord, for sparing her in what could have been uh, much more serious. We want to thank you as well for the reminder that her endeavor to get here from Dearborn Heights in this weather uh, indicates the kind of dedication that you have given to this young lady to learn of you and to grow in you. And so we thank you for the encouragement that Rachel is to so many of us. We ask you, Lord, to help her to heal soon so that she will be able to serve you in full capacity as she desires to do. We thank you for this day. We thank you for this protection. And we ask your blessing now in our time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Benjamin Keach is a famous Baptist preacher from the 17th century in England. He wrote a catechism for children. Now, I said he's a Baptist preacher, and he wrote a catechism. Some of you may say, I didn't know Baptists did catechisms. But yes, indeed, Baptists have historically catechized their children in doctrines of the faith. And Keach wrote a famous catechism. He was also jailed by the Church of England, much like his contemporary Baptist preacher John Bunyan of Pilgrim's Progress fame. Both of them were jailed for engaging in ministry unauthorized by the official church, but ministry that was thoroughly biblical. Benjamin Keach was a significant figure in church history, and his biography is extremely interesting, but it cannot quite be matched to that of his son, Elias Keach. Elias Keach came to America in 1686, and he immediately found work as a pastor. Having grown up in a pastor's home and resembling his father in many ways, He dressed and he looked and he sounded like a pastor was expected to back in those days. He preached to his congregation and he found a receptive audience that was growing, including people being saved under his ministry. Now, one of the especially noteworthy things that happened to uh, Benjamin, or excuse me, uh, Elias Keach, was that he was a man who comported himself, looked the part, sounded the part, comported himself fully as a pastor should, who received good response from his ministry, and people were coming to Christ. It was a very good report, but it was not particularly unusual. There were other people, other ministers at that time, for whom the same could be said. But what's especially unusual about Elias Keach is not that he preached and people were saved. It's that he was saved under his own preaching. Keach had faked his way into the pastorate, looking at it not as a calling and stewardship under God, but as a hireling simply carrying out his job responsibilities. He was hired and he even had good results in his ministry, but all the while he was not himself a Christian. Morgan Edwards, an early chronicler of American Baptists, tells the story. Elias Keach was son of the famous Benjamin Keach of London. 
he arrived in this country a very wild spark about the year 1686. On his landing, he dressed in black and wore a band in order to pass for a minister. The project succeeded to his wishes, and many people resorted to hear the young London divine. He performed well enough till he had advanced pretty far in one of his sermons. Then, stopping short, he looked like a man astonished. The audience concluded he had been seized with a sudden disorder. But on asking what the matter was, they received from him a confession that he was an imposter with tears in his eyes and much trembling. Great was his distress, though it ended happily. For from this time dated he his conversion. In the middle of a sermon, the guy preaching it came to Jesus. A man converted under his own preaching. Thank the Lord for his mercy in convicting this man of his deceit. Because in the concluding portion of what we call the Sermon on the Mount, and that we've been going through together now for the last several months... In this concluding portion of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus warns of the fate of those who, like Keach did for a time, look the part but do not know the reality of a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus says in verse 21 of Matthew 7, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Could I ask a favor? Um, Let me just stop and ask a favor here. Rich, I'm going to ask you, since you're in the back, will you do me a favor and go into the hallway and make sure that everybody who's not supposed to be in the hallway is not and that they're in here? Because this is an extremely, extremely important message. Thank you. Many people have called the verses that I just read the scariest passage in all the Bible. And I believe that at any given time in most, if not all, churches, there are church members, perhaps even or especially visible prominent church members, who are not in fact born again and need to be saved like Elias Keach. Sometime back I told you the story of a professor and pastor from whom I took a class at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. Pastor Harry Reeder told a story of one of his early pastorates. In his first sermon in this congregation that was new to him, he decided to preach a simple, clear gospel message. And so he made arrangements with the keyboardist to come up front and play at the end while he gave a closing prayer. As he prayed, he didn't hear any music playing, and he wondered why. When he finished praying, he looked at the keyboard, she's not there. And then he says he heard someone weeping, and at first didn't know from where it was coming, but then realized there was someone below the pulpit who had come to the front to pray. He looked, and there was the woman who had been the keyboardist for many years, asking the Lord Jesus to save her. Now, we might rightly ask ourselves the question, why would someone go through the motions of church and not really be saved, not really have a relationship with Jesus? In the case of Elias Keach, it was simple. It was for the money. The many false teachers that are on the airwaves today fit in this category. They parade themselves as men of God, but they do what they do for the money. But what about the average person in a congregation? Why serve and attend and give and do all the things Christians do if, in fact, you're not a Christian yourself? A lot of answers that could be given to that. It's socially acceptable, especially in certain parts of our country. If you're familiar with the South, down South, everybody goes to church. You just go to church. 
And so if you live in a particular town, then that's just what you do on Sunday. And you learn the lingo, and so it's socially acceptable. And of course, in many parts of the north, that's the case as well. Or perhaps you just grew up in church, so you're used to it. And there's a nostalgia then for those good old days, and you remember being there, and you remember the people that you knew, and you remember even some of the songs, and that warms your heart when you hear them. So there's nostalgia. Another reason might be that the Christian life, especially in, in a country like ours where we have freedom of expression, where we're not persecuted for our faith, the Christian life is a good way to live. Christian people who follow Christian principles are generally people who stay out of jail, don't get in all kinds of trouble. Their divorce rate is much lower, contrary to some statistics you've heard, much lower than the general populace. It's a good way to live. And it has good people to live with and to have your kids grow up with. And yet there's another reason as well. It may just be that we are self-deceived. We say we are saved. We think we are saved. We think we are born again. Perhaps because no one has directly challenged that for us. But Jesus is challenging that in these scary verses in Matthew chapter 7. The people Jesus is describing here are relying for salvation on what it is they say about Christ. Notice he says in verse 21, Not everyone who says to me. And then in verse 22, On that day many will say to me, So these are people who know what to say. And Jesus focuses in on their verbal profession. Now, a verbal profession of Christ is indispensable. In fact, in order to be saved, the Bible says we have to confess with our lips and we have to believe with our hearts. Romans chapter 10, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it's with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. So it's indispensable to have a profession and to verbally acknowledge your need and Christ as the one who alone can fill that need. But I've titled this message, you see at the top of the outline that's inserted in your program, if you don't have that out yet, I encourage you to take a look at it. At the top of the outline, I've titled this message, Mere Churchianity. And many of you will know that as a play off of the classic book by C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity. For Lewis, mere Christianity was true Christianity, at its core, stripped of all extraneous issues and even doctrines. Mere churchianity is people who are the opposite. Not genuine Christians, but who play the part in church. And so I want us to see from this passage two major points that Jesus is making. The first is this. Christians do not merely profess Christ. They do not merely, do not only, profess Christ. Genuine Christians can be distinguished from the false professing Christians that Jesus describes in a number of ways. And I have four of those listed in your outline. True Christians are not merely polite. Christians do not merely profess Christ, and they are not merely polite. Now, why do I I say it that way? The false professors call Jesus by the respectable and polite title, Lord. Now, we know the title Lord as one that's synonymous with God, with Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. But in the Bible, in Bible times... It was often simply a title of respect, the word Lord, kind of like we would say, we would say, sir. In fact, there's an example of that in John chapter 8, when Jesus confronted the religious leaders who had judged as guilty a woman caught in adultery. You may remember that story in John chapter 8. And Jesus confronted them, convicted them of their sin. One by one, the Bible tells us the religious leaders went away, and then Jesus says to her, Where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she says, no one, sir. And the word for sir is the same word for Lord. No one, Lord. And then he says, neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. So many times in the New Testament, the word for Lord is simply a title of of respect, meaning something like, as translated here, 
sir. And that is why you have this ironic thing that happens in Matthew chapter 16, where Jesus begins to explain to his first followers, the disciples, that in a few days he's going to make his way to Jerusalem, and in Jerusalem he's going to suffer and ultimately die. And here's what the Bible tells us about that in Matthew 16. Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. But Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. And he begins to rebuke him by saying, never notice, Lord. Now, do you see the irony there? You're Lord, but I'm going to rebuke you. And what Peter is, the way Peter is using the word Lord here is as this title of, of respect. And clearly he doesn't understand at this point at least the implications of Jesus being Lord of all because there is no way that you would be able to rebuke him if in fact he is Lord. So Christians do not merely profess, which means unlike these people that Jesus describes in verses 21 through 23 of Matthew 7, they are not merely polite and respectable in their mention of Jesus. I say secondly in your outline, they are not merely orthodox, not merely orthodox. Now, orthodox means correct, right teaching, correct or right doctrine, truth. And what I'm saying here is that true Christians are not merely right in their teaching, right in their doctrine. These people were apparently right in their teaching because they're addressed to Jesus, Lord, Lord, which is polite, but we know it is the word also in Scripture has more meaning than just sir. And so they address him with these words that are biblical and true. Jesus is the Lord of heaven and earth. He is, in fact, the one that Thomas, one of his first followers, would later bow down before and say, my Lord and my God. He's exclusively the Lord. He's the master because he is God. And so when they call him Lord, yes, it's a title of respect. They're polite, but it's also a title of correct doctrine, correct teaching. He is, in fact, the Lord of heaven and earth, Lord God. And going all the way back to the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, we're given in a famous passage in Deuteronomy chapter 6, one line that is the most orthodox line for all of Israel. It was to separate Israel from all of the competing nations and all of their rival gods. It is called the Shema in Hebrew because Shema means to hear. And the reason it's called that is because here's what Deuteronomy 6 and verse 4 says, hear, Shema, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Lord is not many. There are not many gods. There is one God. And the Lord our God is He. And so here, so that was the statement of orthodoxy. And many would say it, but the question was how many actually believed it. When you come to the New Testament, in the book of James, in particular James chapter 2, where James is talking about the relationship between profession, saying you believe, and actually doing deeds, works that are consistent with that claimed belief. You remember in James chapter 2, he says, faith without works is, is dead. And in the midst of that, James says this, you believe that there is one God, good. But then he says, even the demons believe that and shudder. So they not only believe it, they actually tremble when they think about the fact that there is this one true and living God, and yet they are demons. So their address to Jesus as Lord, Lord, must be more than mere politeness. It must be more than mere orthodoxy. Christians do not merely profess Christ. They're not merely polite or doctrinally correct. That is orthodox. And I say thirdly in your outline. They are not merely enthusiastic. They're not merely, only enthusiastic. And these people about whom Jesus is speaking were apparently enthusiastic about Him. Because they don't just say, Lord. Notice what they say. They say, Lord, Lord. Now, why is that important? Because in the Bible... Repetition 
is done for emphasis. You're not just the Lord. You are Lord of Lords. You are Lord, Lord, they address him. We see examples of this in the Old Testament. In that famous scene in Isaiah chapter 6 where, as we'll read in a moment, the Bible tells us the prophet Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up. He uses the same kind of repetition for emphasis. Isaiah 6 says this, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne. The angels were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. Now why not just holy? Because it's emphasis. And the repetition is in effect saying, you are the superlative holy one. You are holy, and you are holier, and you are the holiest. And we find in the New Testament the same kind of repetition in order to emphasize something. Remember your King James days when you used your King James Bible? We use the NIV here, but back in King James days, Jesus would often say things like in John 5, 24, verily, verily. I say to you. In the NIV, it's truly, truly, I say to you. Now, why? Because Jesus is emphasizing the importance of what it is he's going to say. And so here these people are. They are apparently enthusiastic for Jesus. Lord, Lord. What do you get out of that? What do you learn out of that? Many things that we could be warned about and learn from this. But one is this beware of people who talk so very pious. I am wary of people who talk so very pious. I love to converse with Christians who are learning God's Word, know God's Word, and are feasting on God's Word. But I am wary of the person who just throws Jesus' name around and who, who seems to do it for, for emphasis and I don't know anyone's hearts. I'm just wary because I see these warnings in Scripture of someone who may seek to sound pious. As Shakespeare said in another context, methinks he protests too much. Methinks that there are times where people want to impress too much by the language that they use. Christians do not merely profess that is, they're not merely polite, not merely orthodox, not merely enthusiastic. And fourthly, they're not merely active, not merely active. Now, why do I say they are not merely active? Because Jesus says in verse 22 that they are going to come, many are going to say to me in that day, Lord, did we not? And notice the things, did we not? prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do miracles in your name? These were people who were not only polite and orthodox and enthusiastic, they were actually active. They were doing things and they were doing these, these many kinds of biblical things. So how do you harmonize that? How do you have people who Jesus makes very clearly are not born again, are not Christians, do not have a relationship with Him, and yet these are people who did these things. Jesus does not refute the fact that they did these things. So you might look at it and say, well, that, they're just saying they did that. No, Jesus doesn't say, no, you didn't. Apparently they did these things, and we have good reason to think that they were able to do these things, because you find that mentioned elsewhere in Scripture. Satan is a supernatural being, and Satan, although a creature made by God and thus subordinate to the true and living God, there are not two equal spiritual powers out there. Never think that, friends. But Satan is a supernatural being, and he is able to do, along with his minions, the demons, supernatural things. And he is able to do those from time to time through human agency. And so 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 says the coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie. And in fact, in just a few chapters after this, Matthew chapter 7, in Matthew chapter 10, 
Matthew records Jesus' calling of his first followers. And it says this, Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. So now here's Jesus empowering his first followers. So Satan can apparently do these things. And Jesus empowered his first followers to do these things. And who were those first followers? Well, I want you to see what the next few verses say about who these guys were. These are the names of the twelve apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. And then the list goes on, and at the very end of the list, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now that list and the names are given immediately after it says Jesus authorized and empowered them to do this stuff. Apparently, even Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Jesus, were able to do these things. Now, what kind of lesson do you draw out of that? Listen, friends. The fact that somebody is spectacular, the fact that somebody can do stuff, does not tell you anything about his character. And what God says is, yes, my apostles, my followers, are going to be authenticated by their ability to do these things. We'll see that in a moment. But there are others who are able to do these things as well. And so that is not what distinguishes them from false teachers, false leaders. What distinguishes them ultimately is their character. And then as we saw last week in verses 15 through 20, the fruit of their ministry that comes out of that character. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul says the marks of a true apostle include these very things, signs and wonders and miracles. And so you've got, on the one hand, to be an apostle in the first century, you had to have the ability to do this. And Jesus authorized his first followers to do this. And that authenticated their message, we find elsewhere, Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 4, for example. But then you've got other people who can do this as well, who are false teachers. So how does this serve as a mark of a true apostle if other people can do it and fake it? Well, hear this. Signs and miracles and wonders were necessary for authenticating an apostle, but they were not sufficient. These things were necessary, but they were not sufficient, and they were never designed in order to be used alone as a determining factor in whether or not someone is indeed a true teacher, a true leader, in the first century, a true apostle. So, friends, the Bible would bid us to seek, instead of the spectacular to seek the steady. The Christians, the leaders, the churches who day in and day out and week in and week out and year in and year out are steadily following the instructions that the Lord has given in obedience to Him. A second century Christian document called the Didache, it's a Greek word for teaching. The teaching of the twelve apostles is the full title of what we just shortened to, the Didache. It's a fascinating document because it tells us something about life in the early church, in this case, after the Bible is written and the apostles have passed. But one of the things the Didache says is this, not everyone who speaks in a spirit is a prophet, except he have the behavior of the Lord. It's not the spectacular stuff. It's the character that must go along with it. I've said, as I've said, this has been called by many the scariest passage in the Bible. And the scary part is this, that these people say, Lord, Lord, both now and they will continue to say, Lord, Lord, even then when they stand before the Lord. So notice, not everyone Jesus says, not everyone who says, present tense, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, verse 21. And then in verse 22, many will say to me in the future, Lord, Lord, did we not? So they're saying it now. And they'll say it then. And so presumably, they've been doing this all along in between. That is, they live lives that are show, but not reality. And they live those lives now, and they make that verbal profession now, And they will make that verbal profession then, and Jesus will say there was no substance there. Christians do not merely 
profess Christ. Here's the second major point in your outline. Christians truly possess Christ. They do not merely profess. They truly possess Christ. Jesus says it is obedience, not God talk, not titles. That is the decisive issue in terms of determining those who are His. Verse 21, Only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter the kingdom of heaven. And the exposure of their false profession will occur, Jesus says, on that day. Many will say to me, in that day. So verse 20, in verse 22. Now that day is the day of judgment. And it's used both of the judgment of Christians, but it is also a reference to the judgment of non-Christians. And the Bible teaches there are two separate judgments for those who are Christians and those who are non-Christians. Paul spoke of that day in 2 Timothy chapter 1. When he says, I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he's able to guard what I've entrusted to him until, notice the phrase, that day. And the verdict that Jesus will render to these false professors is in verse 23. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Now that Jesus never knew these false professors strikes a a common biblical note regarding the close relationship that someone can have to spiritual reality, even in the case of Judas Iscariot, to, to Jesus himself, and yet all the while knowing nothing of its fundamental reality. When Jesus says, I never knew you, it's not just knowing about you. Obviously, Jesus knew them and knew about them and knew who they were because Jesus is God and He knows everything. So in that day when people stand, He's not saying, you know, what was your name again? I forgot about you. He's not saying, I never knew you. I don't remember you. He's saying that I never had an intimate knowledge of you. I never had a relationship with you. And so contrary to the non-eternal security crowd, You all know what I mean when I say that? That is, people who do not believe in a biblical truth called eternal security. The non-eternal security crowd. Contrary to what they say, and I've had many non-eternal security people cite this passage to suggest to me, look, here's an example of some people who had to have been saved. They had to have had a relationship with Jesus. Because look at all the stuff they did and look at the language that they used. These are people who were saved and then come judgment day, they're not saved. They must have lost it. But contrary to what they say, these are not people who were saved and then later lost it. These are people who looked saved and never were. Jesus says, I never had a relationship with you. When he says, I never knew you. Now how do I know that when he says, I never knew you, means a relationship with? Because it's used that way. This word know is used that way in a number of places in Scripture. In Amos chapter 3, God says of the people of Israel, You only have I chosen, and the word translated chosen is literally known. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Again, it's not saying I don't know about all these other people, but I have a special relationship with you. Romans 8, 29, those God foreknew, He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. Very clearly in 2 Timothy chapter 2, the Lord knows those who are His. He knows those who are not His too, intellectually, but He knows in a relational way those who are His. And then Jesus said in John chapter 10, I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. Our final destiny will be settled, Jesus insists, neither by what we are saying to Him today, nor by what we will say to Him on the last day, but by whether we do what we say in conjunction with moral obedience to Him. 
So whether or not I truly have a relationship with Jesus is not based on what I say. It's not based on what I will say. Jesus says it's based upon whether or not you are engaging in a life of true moral obedience to me. At the end of verse 21, he says, It is only the one who does the will of my Father. And in Luke chapter 6, Jesus asked, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? And do you remember in the giving of what we call the Great Commission, after Jesus has completed his earthly ministry, he's died on the cross for our sins, he's raised from the dead, he's ready to ascend back to the Father, he gives final instructions to his first followers. And in that Great Commission, He says this, teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. So one commentator says this, most Christians see ethics, that is, the things they do in their lives from a Judeo-Christian perspective, and they gladly follow biblical rules because they seem common sense. They describe the way we do things. It's a blessing to agree with the word of the Lord, but agreement does not test us much. The test of loyalty, the test of our submission to the Lord comes when His will crosses ours. We truly obey, that is, we truly submit to God whenever we obey a command that requires painful or even strange actions. You see, you can talk, I can talk all day. Jesus is Lord. But the, question, the, the issue of whether or not Jesus is really Lord will be seen when His will crosses my will. And now who's Lord? When Jesus requires and demands that I do something that's difficult, something I don't want to do. Friends, our country has been harmed greatly over the last many decades by a false teaching that some have labeled easy believism. You ever heard that phrase? Easy believism. The idea is is that what we need to do in church is to secure, however we need to do it, secure professions of faith from people. Get people at all costs, whatever you've got to do, whatever kind of spectacular show you need to put on, whatever you've got to do to get people to walk the aisle and pray the prayer. Make that profession of faith. And so you've got people all over the country who say, when I was six, and by the way, six-year-olds can get saved, truly get saved. I believe that. But you've got people who all over the country are saying, when I was such and such an age, I prayed the prayer. I'm good to go. And Jesus is saying, it's not what you say. It's how you've been transformed And then that transformation is shown in what you do. Easy believism is a no-lordship approach to salvation. Those who teach this say, you pray the prayer, you make the profession, and then at some time in the future you may optionally have an experience that God brings into your life such that you submit to Him as Lord. And I say to you, friends, that is nonsense, it is unbiblical, and it is dangerous for the eternal soul's of people. When you come to Jesus Christ, yes, He is your Savior, my Savior, thanks be to God. He is your Lord from moment one. You bow your heart and your life to Him. And you say, yes, Lord. What you would have me do is what I will do. It is your will, not my will. Jesus says the verdict will be for these professors, but not possessors, away from me. This has always been God's verdict on those who refuse to do His will, beginning with our first parents who were banished from the Garden of Eden, away from me. The Bible says when we come to Him, we come to Him as our Savior and our Lord, He gives us His Holy Spirit and there is a transformation that takes place in us. And we are then different people. We're not perfect people, to be sure, as we'll see at the end of the message, which is coming soon. But we are different people, and we are gradually transformed people. The Bible says, 1 Corinthians 6, Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. 
Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, drunkards, slanderers, swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And so is anybody who's done any of those things after they've come to Jesus, because we all still sin after that, are none of those people going to heaven? It's not what Jesus says. He says, or excuse me, what Paul says. The next verse says this, and that is what some of you were. You see, what he's saying is there is a difference after you come to Jesus. It's not that, again, as we'll see in a moment, that you don't struggle with sin. And sometimes some of the same sins that you came to Jesus with. But it's that you are transformed and are being transformed. Some of you were, but you are washed, you are sanctified, you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And so this is why the Bible implores us in a number of places to look at ourselves and ask ourselves the probing question, am I truly a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? 2 Corinthians 13, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. 2 Peter chapter 1, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. Now, how is that? Peter gives the characteristics of one who is a follower of Jesus. Is this my profile? Because the Bible says if anyone is in Christ The new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. Everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. We not only turn away from wickedness, but we turn toward righteousness. And what does righteousness look like? Jesus has given it in the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, that's what the whole Sermon on the Mount is about. He is saying that this is the profile of people who follow me. They are humble in heart. They come to me, chapter 5 and verse 3, with poverty of spirit. They are people who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They are people who, unlike the hypocrites that Jesus confronted in His day, they are not people who put on a show with their praying and their almsgiving. These are people who serve me from the heart. But hear this in conclusion. You can't do acceptable deeds to God and for God until you are accepted by God. You cannot perform acceptable deeds for God until you have been accepted by God. And how is it that you're accepted by God? Not by your deeds. I don't do the deeds to be accepted by God. I come to Jesus as Savior and Lord, and in Jesus, I'm accepted by God, and now I do deeds consistent with that new relationship. But you can't do deeds acceptable to God until you are first accepted by God. We are accepted by God in the Lord Jesus. Ephesians 1 says this, His glorious grace has blessed us in the beloved. Some translations say we are accepted in in the beloved. And so the justification that we receive when we believe in who Jesus is and what He has done and we would confess with our mouths and believe in our hearts that Jesus is Lord, when we come to a point in time and we do that, God justifies us just as if I'd never sinned. He applies the death of Jesus to me. He applies the perfect life of Jesus to me. Thanks be to God. And He looks at me now no longer through my sin, but through the righteousness of Jesus. That's justification. But hear this. Justification results in sanctification. And there is no reality of justification if there is not an indication of sanctification in the life of the one who professes Christ. And so these people declare Jesus as Lord, and Jesus on that day declares, I never had a relationship with you. It's possible to call Jesus Lord and not know Him as Lord. So what do we do? Well, if you've been awake and you've been listening, then you should be probing yourself as I have had to probe myself all week in preparing. And asking yourself, do I belong to Jesus? Do I have a relationship with Jesus? Or if I'm one of these people who's a professor and I see the benefits of being at church and I like these people and there are all kinds of reasons that I play the Christian part 
And I know I sin. Every person here and this one standing here, we all sin. And so if you have a sensitive conscience at all, you're asking yourself, does that mean I don't belong to the Lord? Hear this. The difference between a genuine possessor of Jesus and a mere professor of Jesus is not, it's not this, it's not that one has sin and the other doesn't. <laughs> they both have sin. How do I know that? 1 John 1.8, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So the difference is not, I don't sin, they do. The difference is this. It's not the presence or absence of sin. It is our reaction to sin. And if you are sitting here today and you're saying, Oh, Lord, thank you for convicting me. I understand all the more clearly the sinner that I am. And yes, it does strike some fear into me that one day I will stand before you as a sinner. But immediately my mind goes to a place called Calvary and the cross there where you did what I could not do for myself. You died for my sins. Thank you, Jesus. And my reaction then to my sin is, Lord, I want to follow you and I ask you to forgive me. If that's your heart's cry, then it's an indication you belong to Jesus. That you know Jesus and that Jesus knows you. But dear, dear friend, please understand. You cannot go on month after month and year after year coming to church, sitting in the chairs, hearing the truth, and not being changed, not being convicted of your sin. So we're going to bow and pray in just a moment. When we do, I want to encourage all of us who know Jesus, and more importantly, whom Jesus knows, so that one day he's not going to say to us, I never knew you. No, I have a relationship with you and we have a relationship with him. So for those of you who are convinced of that because of the person and work of Jesus and his spirit's work in your heart and your desire to please him and to eradicate known sin in your, in your lives, we're going to ask the Lord to forgive us of any complacency and any sin that we're holding on to. 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sin... He is faithful and He is just to forgive us our sin, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But then there may be some here who are saying, you know, I'm Elias Keach. And I've been playing the part. But the reality is not there. I need to come to Jesus for the very first time. I need to be born again. I need to be saved. How does that happen? You've heard it week after week sitting here. But when the Lord and His Spirit turn the light on, you hear the same thing anew. And so you realize you're a sinner. And you recognize that Jesus died on the cross for your sin. You repent of your sin. And you receive Jesus Christ into your life. You acknowledge that you're a sinner. Acknowledge that the only payment for your sin is the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. You repent of your sin. Lord, I want to eradicate sin for, known sin from my life. I want to follow you. I want you to be my Lord. I'm going to go your way, not my way. That's what we mean by repentance. You receive Jesus Christ into your life. You do that by doing what Romans chapter 10 said. You confess with your mouth. You believe with your heart that Jesus is Lord and you will be saved. Let's bow together. O oh Lord, and we do not use that title lightly. It's a title of infinite respect because of who you are. It is a title loaded with meaning because you are the master, the creator, you are indeed God. And so, Lord Jesus Christ, we approach you. We approach you humbly. We approach you with shamed faces. Because of our sin, because of our desire to go our own way and profess you as Lord, but not follow you as Lord so many times in our lives. But Lord, I thank you that the difference between me and one who is outside your family is not the presence or absence of sin. It is the reaction to it. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for convicting me and convicting us 
so that when we are shown from your word how we fall short, we want to be conformed to the image of Jesus. We know we cannot, we have no way to do this on our own. And so we acknowledge our complete dependence on you and your grace operative in our lives through your spirit, through your word, through the teaching of your church and the influence of your people and all of these means of grace that you have provided. Thank you, Lord, for convicting those of us who do belong to you of those things we do that are inconsistent with who you are. Forgive us, Lord. Cleanse us as you promise. And help us this week to be representatives as Christians who know Jesus as Lord and Savior. And then, Lord, for any who are here, for whom churchianity is a way of life, Lord, many, you have said, will say, did we not do these things? Did we not, on a day in February of 2015, brave the elements to come to church? We could have stayed home. We didn't. This surely indicates our dedication to you and that we love you. And you may say to some on that day, I never knew you. O Holy Spirit, I ask you, do what only you can do. Move upon the hearts of some who are members of your church, who say, Lord, Lord, who are enthusiastic and are active and do many marvelous things, but for whom a relationship with you has never been a reality. In your love and your grace, you have given them this message. And in your love and your grace, you extend your arms to them and you say, come to me. Oh Lord, I ask you to draw some out of the world and to yourself in this sacred moment. As a result, may there be some who are saved who had been mere professors. And as a result of that, may your church be purified and better able to move forward for your glory in your world. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand together for our closing song. And after we are done, um, in fact, don't stand yet. I'm sorry for those of you in the back. I, I apologize. It's only the people in the back who would stand up. They're waiting for the people in the front are waiting to see. Uh, we'll stand in just a moment. Any of you who need to talk to me this week, this is what I do. This is what God has called me to do. Preach His Word. Preach it as clearly as we can. And then deal with those who are in His family and those who He is bidding to come into His family. You contact me this week. I want to talk to you about your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. What a marvelous thing it would be to be able to stand before the Lord one day and to not have anyone, and I can't make this happen, I can only plead, but I would love it, O oh Lord, that there was no one who came under the sound of the teaching and preaching of God's Word in this place who ever professed Jesus, who did not at the same time possess Jesus. And so I ask you, if you have concerns about that, let's talk this week. Your eternal destiny rides on it.